welcome to the Beltline Church of Christ podcast. We're so glad you found us. Please take a second and hit the subscribe button so that you can be notified of these weekly podcasts. Most of all, we hope this podcast will help you take your next step with Jesus. If you want to know more about us, you can visit us at www.beltlinechurchofchrist.org. Here's today's lesson. Time. We're in the middle, actually, we just started last week, a new series of lessons on the life of Christ. We began this chronological look at the most influential life that's ever lived last week by talking about Jesus' birth and his absolute unique identity. And for the next few weeks, we're going to be examining several accounts of Jesus' early life, uh, life before he begins his ministry. And what I find so interesting is that uh, there's a whole lot of ways that people try to, uh, to explain the life of Christ. Have you noticed that? There's these things called creeds out there that, and I'm not advocating creeds, don't misunderstand, but there was creeds that were written centuries ago uh, that were trying to kind of wrap up Jesus' life and, and what it looked like. For example, the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed says this, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. Third day, he rose again from the dead, ascended to heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. And the creed goes on to say some more things. And the Nicene Creed is very, very similar to what they call the Apostles' Creed. But all of these creeds, I don't know if you caught it, mention nothing about the life of Christ. They start with his birth, and they instantly jump right to his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and they say nothing about his life. And it's not just the creeds. How often are you and I guilty of doing the exact same thing? We focus in on Jesus' miraculous birth, and we focus on what he accomplishes on the cross. But my question is, what about the rest of his life? How do you view the rest of his life? Is the rest of his life simply filler? Before we get to the cross, it seems that the way some people talk about Jesus' life, it can become almost irrelevant. Oh, 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 yeah, 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 yeah. He offers us some good examples of how we should live, and his miracles are really cool too. They kind of prove who he is, but, but is that all there is to his life? You see, for far too many people, the only thing that matters is Christmas and Easter. And I'm here to tell you that's crazy. By no means is that true, and, I, and that's one of the reasons for this series of lessons where we're going to spend the next several months diving deep into the life of Jesus Christ, because there's so much here that's important for us as a church to grasp, and we'll talk more about that as we go along. The political scene to which Jesus was born was amazingly interesting, to put it mildly. We know that Rome was the ruling power of Jesus' day. And Herod the Great, also known as Herod I, was the king of Judea who ruled as an agent of Rome. Now, Herod is known for many things, but most of all, he's known for his ruthlessness. We know Herod took the throne in 37 BC, and the longer that his reign went on, the more trouble it became. In fact, suspecting his wife of being unfaithful, he he did what every good husband would do. He had her executed in 29 BC. Not really. 
Their two sons, who were also suspected of being loyal to the opposition, he had them killed as well. And his eldest son, a young man named Antipur, he killed a few years later because he was, he was so uh, uh, worried about losing his power. And that's not all he did. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. But Herod also did a few things that you might be considered good in Jerusalem. He was, he was responsible for a lot of different building works, some construction projects, if you will. It was Herod who rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. And he does that not just to have a, have, a, have a construction project under his belt. No, that meant something. And we'll talk more about that as we talk about the temple in a few weeks. But he also built several aqueducts there in Jerusalem. And he built a massive fortress on top of a hill called Herodium. And so while he did do some good as far as the building projects go for the Jewish nation, you need to know that he was loathed. He was hated by the population. Herod was only half Jewish, and one of the main things that he's known for is doing away with the priestly lineage, and he ended up appointing whoever he wanted to the position, regardless of whether or not they were from the priestly tribe of Levi. This was the ruler of the day when Jesus Christ was born. Go with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, we're going to focus in for a minute on verses 22 to 28. Because 40 days after Jesus was born, Joseph and Mary have come to the temple for her purification ceremony. This was required of all devout Jewish women after having a child. And it was also a time of dedication uh, where Jesus, as the firstborn son of his earthly parents, is dedicated to the Lord. I want you to think about the irony of that statement. The Son of God is being dedicated back to God himself. God himself is being dedicated to God himself. Think about the irony of that, that, that idea there. And while they are there in the temple, we are introduced to two people. Their names are Simeon and Anna. And I want to look at these two a little bit today, as well as some other things as we walk through this lesson. If you were to read these verses, what you would find is that Simeon is known for four things. Simeon is known as, number one, being righteous. Oh, that these four things could be said about all of us, right? He was righteous. Another word that is used to describe Simeon is this word devout. He's devout. Uh, that means his, his faith, his, his religion is not just something that he plays around with. It's something he's committed to. He's dedicated to it. He is righteous and he is devout. Number three, he's waiting for the rescue of Israel. He's waiting for the rescue of Israel. And finally, maybe my favorite characteristic of Simeon is that the Holy Spirit was upon him. Again, oh, that that could be said of all of us, that we are righteous and that we are devout and we're waiting for the rescue of God and the Holy Spirit was upon us. That's a little bit of a background about, about who Simeon was. Now, the Holy Spirit made Simeon, who is also a priest, a promise. In those verses, if you were to read them, you would see that the promise that the Holy Spirit made to him is that he would not die until he saw the Messiah, the Lord's Christ, the anointed one, the King. He would get to see the King. And so the next thing that we see is that the Holy Spirit leads him into the temple to encounter the baby Jesus and his parents. And I want you to focus in on verse 29. Listen to what Simeon says in these verses. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light of revelation to the Gentiles 
and glory and for glory to your people Israel. Can you imagine having a priest swoop up your child in their arms and then saying something like that about them? What must have been going through the mind of Joseph? What must have been going through the mind of Mary as Simeon says these things? Man, it must have been amazing. But Simeon isn't done. And I really want to look at verse 33. We're going to read this from the New Living Translation. And I want you to catch what he says. Because as good as what those first two verses we read were about, it's about to get a little intense. Lord, excuse me, verse 33, the child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your very soul. Here's what I've found when it comes to Jesus. When it comes to Jesus, it's really easy to be very complicated, and sometimes it's very, very difficult to be simple. And part of that difficulty is that Jesus was and Jesus is so much, much more than we can possibly imagine He's so much more than we can imagine. And I think Simeon shows us this here in his words about the Christ. And my fear, and again, another reason for this series of lessons, is I think that we have unknowingly, unexpectedly been guilty of reducing Jesus Christ. We have been guilty of reducing Jesus. And we use the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, often for some moralizing sermons on how to behave in the upcoming week. We use them as aids to our prayer or maybe to our meditation, but that's nowhere close to what Jesus came to accomplish. It's kind of like having a computer and using a computer to to make a grocery list. You can use the computer for that, but that's not what it's designed for, right? Right? And the Gospels are designed for so much more than that. And Jesus, the Jesus we discover, if we really, really, really look, he's larger, and I want to say this, he is more disturbing. He is more urgent than we, the church, have ever imagined. And one of the reasons why Jesus is rejected, he's, he's opposed, as we just read in this, in this section of Scripture, one of the reasons Jesus wasn't the sort of king people wanted in his own day is that he was the true king. But they had got used to this, this, this shabby, ordinary, second-rate kind of kings like King Herod. They they were looking for a builder to construct a home they thought they wanted, but Jesus is the architect coming with a new plan that would give them everything they needed, but within a brand new framework. They were like looking for a singer to sing a song they had been humming for a long time, but Jesus is the composer bringing them a new song to which the old songs they knew would be at best background music. He was the king, but not as they expected. Because he had come to redefine kingship itself around his own work, around his own life, around his own mission, around his own fate. And I think it's time for us as the church not only to recognize who he was in his own day, but to recognize him who he is for us today. In John chapter 1 verse 11, we are reminded that Jesus came to his own, but that his own did not accept him. And I'm wondering if the same could be said of us. Are we ready to recognize who Jesus is? 
And here's the truth. I'm just going to say this, and I hope you hear the heart with which is it intended. We are a people who want a religious leader. We don't want a king. We want a religious leader, not a king. We want someone to save our souls, but not rule our world. Or if we want a king, we want someone to take charge of our world. We want someone who's going to implement the policies that we already embrace. Just like they wanted when he walked the earth the first time. And I need to say, if we, the church, if we don't get this right, if we don't get Jesus right, what chance is there that anybody else out there is even going to bother with him? Here's the truth. Jesus continues to cause the rise and the fall of people. And you might not like thinking about the reality that Jesus causes fall, a fall in people. But that's exactly what happens when the king is on his throne and people fail to follow him. They fall. And Jesus continues to reveal the hearts of men. And that's why so many people, even today, still oppose him. Simeon tells us so much about Jesus, but he's not the only one who was there that day. Luke 2 shows us another person of faith, and her name is Anna. Anna was a prophetess, and she was also at the temple when Jesus was brought in to be dedicated. And we know this about Anna. Anna, Anna, tomato, tomato, however you want to say that. We know that Anna never left the temple. She lived there, basically, is what that means. And while she was there, there were two things that she was known for. Day and night, she worshipped God. All day, all night, she was in a constant state of worship to God. And, number two, day and night, she was fasting regularly, and she was praying always. I want to make this point before we read a little bit more about Anna. God honors faithfulness, right? Do you believe that, that God honors faithfulness? He certainly does with Simeon. He certainly does here with Anna. He allows her, she allows him to see the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus himself, the Son of God in the flesh. He allows, God honors faithfulness. Look at verse 36 of Luke chapter 2. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. I want you to notice that she does two things when she encounters Jesus. The first thing that she does is she honors, she worships, she praises God. She comes in contact with Jesus, and it leads her to this amazing praise of the one and only God of the universe, the creator of all things. But not only that, did you see what else she did? Number two, she tells everybody about him. She tells everyone about this child that God allowed her to encounter. And I think this is what all of us are supposed to do when we understand who Jesus is. I think you could call it worship and witness. That's what we're supposed to do. You see, it wasn't enough that she got to see the Messiah for herself. No, no, no. She then goes and tells everybody she can find about what she had experienced. She was 84 years old. And here's what that means. You're never too young to talk about and worship God. And you're never too old to talk about and worship God. We have to do the same thing that she did. 
worship him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength, and tell anyone that we can about the King of Kings. We're going to cover some ground today, so let's go to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, his early experiences, Jesus' early experiences, but I'm really looking forward uh, to getting into the heart of his ministry. Now, that's a few weeks down the road. Next week, we're going to talk about John the Baptist as the forerunner. We're then going to look at Jesus' baptism, follow that up by looking at his temptation, and then we'll be off and running into the life and ministry of Jesus. But there's some important things that we can't miss as we walk through the early years of Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, uh, we have the visit of the wise men, and we have some other things taking place that I think are important for us to mention. The king of the Jews, as Herod was called, if you look at these verses, was told by these travelers from the east about the king of the Jews. <laughs> Isn't that funny? So, so here, Herod, the self-proclaimed king of the Jews, is told by these traveling uh, Easterners uh, that, that, that Jesus, the king of the Jews, has been born. Now, contrary to many nativity scenes, these men never made it to the manger when Jesus was born. Sometime after Jesus is dedicated in the temple, as we just read, the wise men show up looking for him, and they go to the place where they would think to find a king. They go to Herod's palace. And when they go there and tell Herod about him, uh, Herod is beside himself. And you know what he does? When Herod hears that there's another king of the Jews that's been born, he gets religious. <laughs> you ever notice that? When you get threatened, a lot of people tend to get somewhat religious. Well, that's what he does. He begins to ask the scholars, hey, tell me about the Messiah. When is he to be born? Where is he to be born? And he's not interested in following or worshiping this child. He's just asking where he was to be born so he could do away with any threats to his throne. And he shows us his ruthlessness again as he tries to have baby Jesus killed and in so doing actually uh, eliminates, kills many other babies in that region and in that area. Verse 16 tells us that Herod, when he saw that he was tricked by the wise men, as the wise men are told by God, don't go back the way you came, go out a different way. And, and so after a while, he gets onto their scheme. Okay, they're gone. And he's mad. He's upset. And, and he sent and killed all male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. The wise men and Joseph, Mary, and Jesus escape the ruthlessness of Herod. Again, the wise men leave a different way. Joseph and the family head down to Egypt. Now, this is significant. They've already made a significant trip to Bethlehem and then to Jerusalem. And if you watched our five-minute Friday that came out on Wednesday, you saw some of, those, uh, some of the trips of early Jesus, right? Well, from here, they're going to leave uh, Bethlehem, and they're going to go down to Egypt. And that is anywhere from 40 to 400 miles. It's at least 40 miles to get outside of the jurisdiction of Herod. And so at very least, Jesus and his family travel 40 miles south to Egyptian territory, but it is very possible that journey could have been a whole lot longer because Egypt is vast. And we don't know where they went in Egypt, but we know they went at least 40 miles outside of the jurisdiction, but as far as 400 miles into the heart of of Egypt itself. What a journey that must have been with a one or two-year-old. <laughs> and remember, they don't have 
They don't have cars. They don't have airplanes. They don't have internet. They don't have any phones to give them directions. They don't have that. They just have themselves gold, frankincense, and myrrh to take care of their expenses. What a journey that must have been. Now, here's where this gets interesting. We had an interesting conversation around this at Christmas. King Herod dies in 4 B.C., And what that means is that the birth of Jesus actually took place somewhere between 6 and 4 B.C. But wait a minute. Doesn't the calendar B.C., doesn't that mean before Christ? What do you mean he was born 4, 5, or 6 feet? That's when he was born. And and, and remember, there is no year zero, so nobody's born at zero. It was 1 B.C., and then it was 1 A.D., and, and we can get into all of the details. But this is the reality. Jesus was born somewhere between 6 and 4 B.C., I say six and four because Herod dies at four and he tries to kill two-year-old children before that. That gives us that six to four-year range. In Matthew chapter, that's for fun. I won't even charge you for that. You can just look really smart at parties now whenever you go to them. Look at verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warmed in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. A Nazarene. Nazareth is about 64 miles from Jerusalem. And so if you add another 40 at very least, you're talking about over a 100-mile trip that this family makes, at least, the 60 miles is at least a three-day journey. You add the 40, you're talking a week, a week and a half journey here. And this is the town, Nazareth, where Jesus would grow up. And so Jesus is called a Nazarene, and he lives most of his life in this town of Nazareth within the Providence, province, excuse me, excuse me, of Galilee. And although a small village, Nazareth was close to some metropolitan centers like Tiberias and Sepphoris. Unlike those predominantly Gentile cities, however, Nazareth was a Jewish district. It was a relatively poor district, and it was very, very overpopulated. There was a scarcity of natural resources in Nazareth, and and there wasn't a lot of water, and there wasn't a lot of fertile soil. And so into that situation, Jesus is born. And, And you need to know that in Nazareth, there was a fair amount of sickness and disease because of the lack of resources. And as you think about how the Scripture says Jesus, because of their unbelief, couldn't do many mighty miracles in the area that he grew up. Isn't that sad? As, as much as Nazareth needed the healing, they don't get it because they don't believe. Interesting. But however, after saying all of that, Nazareth cannot be considered destitute. It's certainly not. And Jesus, as we know, comes from a family of craftsmen or carpenters. And the last account of Jesus' early years comes at the end of Luke 2. And I want to look at this together and then we'll be done for this morning. In Luke chapter 2, we have this story of his parents taking Jesus back to Jerusalem to experience Passover. It is a pilgrimage they make when Jesus is 12 years old, and we read about this in Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 52. Now, it's important to understand the 12th year of a young man's life in Jewish culture and society. This is the final year of preparation for a young man before he enters into full participation in the religious life of the synagogue. Up until this point, his parents, especially his father, would have been teaching him the commandments of the law. 
But at the end of the 12th year, the child goes through a ceremony by which he formally takes on the yoke of the law and becomes a bar mitzvah, or son of the commandment. That's what bar mitzvah means, son of the commandment. And we know that Jesus lingers behind. We're not told why. We're not told exactly what happened. But we do know that it takes Joseph and Mary three days, I find that interesting, to find him. They had gone a day's journey. They have to rewalk the path, and it took them a day to find him. And when they find him, he's sitting in the temple among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. And it says to us, the text says, all were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And I want to I say something here that maybe you haven't thought about before. I know I hadn't until restudying some of these things again. But these verses tell us that Jesus knew and Jesus loved the law from a very early age. And it also tells us that in that very city where he would be killed 20 years later, at least initially, he was approved of by the people. Or was he? Have you ever thought that maybe Jesus wasn't approved here at this bar mitzvah when he's turning 12 and becoming a, a, a son of the commandment? Because you can be astonished by something. You can be amazed by something you don't like, right? Maybe the teachers of law did not care for the implications of Jesus' answers. But then a 12-year-old really is no threat, is he? You can pat a 12-year-old on the head and say, oh, smart kid, and you can return to your hair-splitting and hypocrisy. Think about it this way. Uh, one of our young ones gets baptized at Camp Maywood. They return home to their unbelieving house, and they tell their dad about Jesus, and the dad smiles condescendedly as to say, well, that's nice for you, son. But then the boy grows into a man who still loves Jesus, who's still on fire for the Lord, and now the issues begin to sharpen. And different destinies come into focus, and the dad just can't be indifferent anymore, and the crisis comes. Is it going to be conversion, or is it going to be alienation? I don't know. I wonder if maybe that's what's going on here. I can't say for sure. That's just speculation. But let's finish with what happens in verses 48 through 50. Listen to this. <clears throat> and when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress, in pain, uh, is, is the actual term there. And he said to them, Why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Some versions say about my father's business. Both translations equally possible. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. This last statement that they didn't understand Jesus, this is Luke's way of saying to us as the readers, there's more to hear than meets the eye. This is the point, don't miss it. This is, this is what Luke's trying to get us to do. You see, they were searching and searching and finally they turn up Jesus at the temple. Now, where did they search before that is my question. Did they go to the local swimming hole? Did they go to the playground, the shops, the bakery? Did Jesus like to eat and maybe they went there? We're not told. But Jesus answers and says, you shouldn't have had to look for me at all. For you know, don't you, that there is laid on me an inner necessity to be in my father's house or to be about his business. And so the main point in all of this is the contrast between your father and I have been searching for you and my father in heaven. Your father and I have been seeking you in pain in my father's house. 
So it seems that the main teaching of this passage is that Jesus now recognizes his unique sonship to God, and he knows that his mission is going to require of him a devotion to God's purposes so great that it's going to take precedence even over the closest family ties. Jesus must follow his calling, even if it brings pain and misunderstanding. And it's that adult ministry that we're going to turn our attention to in the next few weeks. But I want to close with this. If you seek Jesus, you will find him. His parents did. His parents looked for him and they find him. You can do the same thing. Seek him with all your heart and you will find him too. Because here's the reality. He's not missing. He's not playing hide and seek. He wants you to find him. And he's really not that hard to find. You know where you'll find him? Still being about the Father's business. You'll still find him in the Father's house. The only question is, are you going to seek after the real Jesus, or are you going to seek after some made-up idea of what people think he should be? That's the real question. Which Jesus are you going to search for? The, the, the one who is more urgent and more, uh, more than we can possibly imagine, or the one that, that imaginations of men have kind of just passed over? Which Jesus will you seek with all of your heart? And maybe the greatest question that we have to answer is are we going to kneel, are we going to bow before King Jesus? And the great news is, if you've not bowed before King Jesus, today can be the day that you do just that. You can give him your life. You can say, I, I don't care about what everybody else says. I want to know the real king, and I'm going to get my nose in that book, and I'm going to find out about the real Jesus. Not, not some, not some made-up caricature that, that people give, but the real, I want to know him. And I'm going to dig deep because I want to give my allegiance to him. Thanks again for listening. If you are in North Alabama, we would love to have you visit and worship with us. Also, if this lesson blessed you today, don't forget to hit the share button and share this message with someone else. Hope you will join us again next week. As we close, here is our prayer for you. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Have a great week.